Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have our friend, freelance writer Fraser Brown. Hello. And we also welcome back our friend, freelance writer Rowan Kaiser. Hello. I'm not just a freelance writer anymore. That's right. You are the PC gaming correspondent for GameSpeed? Guest post editor. <laughs> well, that sounds less exciting than PC gaming correspondent. <laughs> Well, Today, we bring I, you the latest from PC Gaming. Our intrepid man on the scene, Rowan Kaiser, has been playing the new XCOM. <laughs> I, I watched had, the trailer of it. It's it's a thing. Fantastic. That's that's what I want to hear. Uh, to be to be fair, I'm, I am really curious because I was uh, a little bit in a, in a blackout uh, today because I was at another event. What did we learn about the new XCOM? Uh, so we'll have, we'll have a brief E3 discussion right now on the air. Uh, what did we learn about the new XCOM? I think I think XCOM 2 is particularly relevant to our discussion today because the campaign mode on that was uh, problematic. I hated it. We haven't even introduced the subject yet. <laughs> that's, we just did. No, that's, uh, anyway. that's true. This, this, Rowan is not ready for hosting. You just you can't. <laughs> like Rowan's not ready to the show. Going to have to send him back down. Uh, let him get a little seasoning uh, in, in in the minor leagues and uh, learn learn to learn learn to control his topic pitches. Um, I mean, the subject's going to be in the title of this episode, but there's some showmanship, you know. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, also, I apologize for uh, all the baseball metaphors. I just started playing MLB The Show at Adam Smith's uh, like strong recommendation, and so having played about six or seven innings of the show. I really feel like I have a hand uh, handle on on baseball and baseball strategy, and uh, can can really dip into that lexicon with authority. Anyway, uh, Adam Smith recommended MLB The Show. Yeah, Adam Smith from England. Yes, he loves his sports games and baseball, okay. perhaps most of all. It's Fair basically enough. just it's American cricket, isn't it? So <laughs> you son of a bitch, take that back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it is. I, I have like I have tried to understand the rules to cricket. I just can't. Um, but let's let's dive into today's topic, which is going to be a little bit wide ranging and potentially ill defined. But we're basically going to be talking about uh, sort of meta campaigns in strategy and tactics games. Uh, so any any sort of any sort of game where you spend most of your time, uh, you know, playing one sort like conducting one sort of activity playing playing one sort of game and then it is framed within a larger narrative so you know the campaign in banner saga for instance versus the battles themselves uh total war is probably the you know the quintessential example of this although company of heroes are down salt is another good another good touchstone uh before we continue i should also apologize if my audio is a little bit off um, I'm recording this on a laptop mic, which I try to avoid at all costs, but all my uh, studio mics have been sort of press-ganged into various bits of E3 service this week. So you're catching me uh, in my kitchen on a laptop mic during a brief interlude between between meetings. Uh, so so Fraser, um, well, no, let's let's kick it back over to Rowan, because now, now that we've appropriately... <laughs> How rude! Wow, I've been shunned. I'm just going to leave. Screw you guys! Oh no, you can't. You can't do that. You, you got us into this. You're going to get us out. Uh, but now I think we've appropriately framed the discussion. 
uh, Rowan, why don't you talk a little bit about what we learned about the uh, expansion, is it, for XCOM? Yeah, it's a big expansion for XCOM 2. Um, it seems like, and I've, I haven't watched the gameplay reveal, which seems to be longer than the trailer, but it seems to be adding multiple different factions who are in the resistance. So maybe we get to go shoot some neoliberals now and that'll be exciting. Um, <laughs> and also new like alien superheroes and flamethrowers and dual wielding melee weapons. And yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot going on in the trailer that seems to indicate that they are just, going wild with kind of the rpg elements of xcom which is one of the big discussions i've had about the the whole reboot is the there's this huge tension between is this game an rpg or is this game a strategy game and i think xcom 2 sort of went way more into the this is definitely an rpg which i'm not sure was entirely the right approach and we were more skeptical about xcom 2 than a lot of people on our show or on our show we were than a lot of reviews were and uh i think that has been our skepticism has generally been borne out but um it's definitely interesting to see that they are continuing with the like heavy narrative and rpg style stylings that they had uh, as opposed to let's dig into that a little bit because you know, hearing you hearing you frame it that way, it, it sort of makes sense. But I want to unpack it a little more because I guess I hadn't really, I hadn't really looked at XCOM two as it being an RPG. Like, obviously your your squaddies have progression, uh, and so like there's there's RPG elements there. But uh, I'm I'm curious where where you see this this tension between strategy. And, and RPG-ness. And, and, or, and did that tension seem to get worse in XCOM 2? I'm not sure about worse. It, it, they, they seem to have picked a side more. But um, I noticed it when the first XCOM reboot came out, which was 2012, I think. And there were a lot of people who were kind of playing it as Mass Effect tactics, which it visually seemed to resemble. You know, you're slamming up against your cover and, you know, getting your super psi powers and so on. And in playing it this way, what they would do is they would have their squads of like four to six people and maybe a, you know, a couple more squaddies who would come in if someone was injured temporarily. But they only played the game with that like very small core contingent of, uh, their squaddies. And if any of them died, they'd immediately reload. So it was this, it, it, it had this kind of tactical RPG feel to the, them. And this is where, the strategic layer kind of caused some problems because if you made a few too many mistakes at the strategic player early, you would have like 10 hours later realize that your game was unsustainable. And so for, well, for me and a bunch of other people, it's like, okay, expect that the first game you're not necessarily going to succeed and you want to, you're probably going to want to restart. And I noticed a lot of people based on their experience with the game, how the game looked, how the game felt, they're like, I don't want to restart that. This they're, they're not like strategy game people, they're RPG people who want to play it as an RPG, and it was largely playable as an RPG. And so XCOM 2, I think, really accented that by going in and giving you a lot more customization options with your characters, making um, like their aesthetic progression also tie into their... Um, uh, kind of practical progression, like you could give them tattoos once they've gone up three levels, that sort of thing. Uh, 
and also the the whole like ragtag resistance is very much an rpg trope and i think it it really had that feel very well and i that's that's kind of what what i feel like the tension is whereas you look at something like the long war is an attempt to make xcom much more of a war game that where you know you have 40 squads instead of eight that you have to worry about um long war 2 is a little a little less ambitious on those terms but it's there's still this attempt to say this is a strategy game this is not an rpg where you have a series of straightforward progression it is very much about you know making big strategic decisions at the grand level and that's that's i think what i prefer out of xcom i don't think it's quite rpg enough for me to play it that way but i play it in a very specific kind of way so yeah i mean it's it's difficult for me to to comment too much on this because like i bounced so i bounced so hard off xcom 2 that in some ways i feel like i never really gave it a fair shake but my god i just hated that campaign structure uh, so incredibly much. And, and part of that, I guess, is also that, and maybe this is sort of digging in our, into our topic a little bit more. What I was looking for out of XCOM 2 was, I think, very much the opposite uh, of that direction, much more in that uh, the long war direction that you're describing. I wanted my missions in XCOM 2 to be situated in this kind of broader context. And I think this is what there's a couple different directions that like meta meta layers can can achieve. Like a lot of meta layers actually maybe serve a, a more narrative function. But I think when they're at their best, or at least at their best for me, what they're doing is providing each instance of battle a a a, a larger role in the ongoing story, a larger role in in the evolving context of my situation. And with XCOM 2, I think it sort of fainted in that direction because it's saying, like, you know, as you go through XCOM 2, you know, every tick of the clock uh, that, what was it, Project Avatar or whatever? Yeah, the Avatar Project. Yeah, the Avatar Project uh, was, was getting closer to completion and you needed to be, you needed to be gearing up to uh, sort of mount you, your assault on, on you know, on, on the alien forces. And where they began to break down is instead of a meta instead of a meta campaign layer, it actually just felt like kind of just a stopwatch running uh, on the campaign. And so my battles didn't really have a larger context in the story because fundamentally the only thing the battle determined was are you staying on schedule and on the power curve that this game is designed to sort of, you know, keep you, keep you on those rails. And what I tend to look for a little more in a strategy game is how is this battle going to play, play a part in bringing my larger plans and, and ones that I've like had an active role in shaping, right? Like my larger goals might be working towards some sort of end game state but at least in, with with the metal layer, I am thinking about how I'm going to reach that end state. XCOM 2 kind of fails that test for me because fundamentally it, it feels a bit like a shell game, right? Like mm, you weren't really in charge. You weren't really driving this train 
uh, at any point. This is really just sort of a gate. This is a progress check that you have to pass. Whereas I compared this with something like, and this is a this is a tough comparison for any game, uh, and it, so it's a little bit loaded. But like, you know, I might as well introduce my my queen of the meta campaigns, uh, Jagged Alliance Two, where I do have all that good crunchy squad combat action, but also when I go to this meta layer, this this campaign map. And I'm sort of liberating the small island country sector by sector and taking its resources and converting them into, um, you know, cold, hard cash to sustain operations. All of this, each battle is a chapter in that ongoing story, right? You know, we're fending off the, uh, the guards counter counter assault on Drossen, which is the first major mine and population center, uh, you capture. That's a really cool story, right? It's like the queen's elite units are striking back. Um, when you go to the, uh, there's a boy, there's a really memorable, I don't remember the name of the town. I just remember there's a hospital, uh, level. There's a hospital map, uh, that is just this room to room, uh, <laughs> gut check and battles fought there are really start to feel like these tipping points in the campaign, right? This is like kind of like for me, that's kind of the Stalingrad, of a few of these games uh, that I've played of Jagged Alliance. And how that goes is immediately going to feed back into how the rest of that campaign goes, right? Am I going to have to retreat into the woods and sort of lick my wounds and like sort of get my guerrilla project, uh, you know, back up and running? Or is this going to be another brick on the road uh, to that final showdown? That's kind of what I'm looking for from these. It's Cambria. That's what yes. the hospital is. Yes. Um, I th- I think what a lot of a lot of dynamic and meta campaigns miss uh, is that enemies are events and crises rather than an actual enemy on the battlefield playing the campaign. Uh, so there are things that happen in provinces, like oh, the, an enemy has attacked, but there's no armies moving around. So say like in in Dawn of War 2, for instance, you have areas that you dive into and fight orcs or Eldar or whatever, and then you have those areas under your control. Bad things might happen, but generally that's kind of locked down and you get certain benefits from that region. But there wasn't like an army there that can escape or move or attack again. There's, there are no moving pieces on the battlefield. Uh, which is why I appreciate Arden's Assault, because you're actually fighting against another army that has the same sort of capabilities as you. They are moving across the map, swallowing up areas. And so it it kind of gives you a lot of the tension that uh, a game like XCOM 2 has, where you're constantly under pressure. But you're actually able to discern the enemy's movements, pla- make actual plans to defeat them rather than just going through this kind of progression system. One of the things that I think makes for an interesting question on these terms is, can you lose a battle? Like if you have this tactical strategic division in a game like total war, you can lose battles. You will lose battles. You'll lose entire armies. And maybe, you know, that's inevitable because of the way the strategic map went. Maybe you messed up, but the game is built around the ability for you to lose armies and continue playing. Jagged Alliance 2, you can't. There, it's 
if you like have all your mercs wiped out, you know, you're going to reload. That's pretty much a given with the structure of that game. Um, mm. I mean, it maybe you maybe you want to redo it and go ahead with a, a new mean, set. Well, no, I, I think I, I think you're right up to a point, but. And this is another aspect of this, you know, how these things are going to handle these casualties, these these failures, you know, is, is sort of drawing this uh, Ardan, Ardan's Assault distinction. Where I think Jagged Alliance, Jagged Alliance finds, I think, a pretty good balance between giving you a lot of reasons to reload, but then also sometimes giving you reasons just to, you know, <laughs> just just to take those casualties, right? Because, like, there are some missions um, where, like, man, if, if you get through it and you only lose, like, one or two mercs, you know, it's kind of worth it in terms of the progress you just made, right? Like, it's, like, yeah, if, if you ever get a full squad wipe in, in Jagged Alliance, like, something has gone disastrously wrong. You cannot, like... You, you, it would be inadvisable to continue a campaign after after that kind of debacle, but at the same time, like it doesn't feel as dramatic as, um, like you know, anytime a halfway decent merc eats it, I immediately feel like, well, this mission was a failure, and I need to run it again until it goes a little bit better, because uh, after a certain point, that just doesn't that doesn't feel feasible. Which I don't feel the same way at XCOM a lot of times, like, because, because XCOM relies on my soldiers scaling this, this power curve, uh, you know, pretty consistently, losing your, your top sniper, uh, for instance, in a lot of ways means that, that a character is not readily replaceable. It's not just that you're going to miss all their, all their sweet skills. It's literally that. Your second, your second string, or God help you, your third string sniper, is literally just not like you know, uh, an unviable unit in a lot of mid and late game battles. It just like that character is not going to be able to pull off uh, the things you need a sniper at that stage in the game to be capable of of doing. Uh, so I, I think I think Jagged Alliance is doesn't quite fit that. Um, that save scumming model. I kind of feel like Rob, maybe you're just playing really badly <laughs> because, <laughs> because I can't think of a situation where I was like, Oh shit, I've only got one sniper I can use. And the other one is crap. I'm like I got loads of snipers, but, snipers for days. No, I, I, I mean, there's also difficulty things. I, I would usually play XCOM on the harder difficulties and yeah, you, you don't get, um, you don't get much breathing room with, having a character get killed in that way but but this is more the point that i was getting to was that in xcom 2 it looks like a situation where you can you know have a full squad wipe and still go on like especially because the characters are you know procedurally generated or you put them together they're not like the jagged alliance you have 50 mercs total and only half of them are actually good, and these are the four that you've, like, emotionally connected to, and if any of them dies, then it's the worst thing ever. It's it's So XCOM 2 ends up feeling like a game where you should be able to have these characters wipe. It feels like a Darkest Dungeon, for example, um, where wipes are relatively common, and you can just keep going. And uh, 
the thing is with XCOM 2, you get to a point where it's like, okay, if I if I am going to continue this campaign, I need to shut down this local avatar project thing right now, and I have a squad that has three rookies. This is just not going to happen. And that's that's kind of the core issue that I have had with it. And the Long War kind of reverses it in a different way, or the Long War 2 for XCOM 2, but it still has the same issue of, like, just full wipes are unfeasible. Sorry, it, it can't be done even though it feels like it should be. Um, and one of the core problems, I think, is, or I don't even know if this is a problem, but one of the key differences between XCOM and A Darkest Dungeon, or even to some extent A Jagged Alliance 2, is that there is not a significant amount of strategic pressure. Um, in Darkest Dungeon, there's almost no strategic pressure. There you... In your town, you are safe for as long as you are playing it, with the exception of a few events that they've added and a, a time limit at the like the super hard, <coughs> the super hard level that they've uh, difficulty level that they've added. But you get to just say, "All right, if I need to level up some more characters, I have the space to do that." Um, and the higher the strategic pressure is, the less space you have to do that. And that's. Uh, I'm not sure that's actually a good way to design those meta campaigns. Like, if the core of your game is the tactical combat, then the decisions you make there should be your what makes your campaign work. Whereas in XCOM 2, I don't think that's the case. I think you can very easily make strategic decisions that will screw you over for the entire game. I think fixing, a, a, like, that like feeling that you're safe in, in somewhere in, like, d Darkest Dungeon or... or anything like that not having that kind of tactical or strategic tension all you need is a mobile opponent someone that can besiege or move around i think all you need to do is kind of look at how strategy games generally have their campaigns um because that's how they work and it's unusual that tactics games tend to just have an enemy that's like an obstacle rather than an opponent moving around Oh, I'm saying that it's a good thing to not have that with the tactics games because the focus is the tactics, right? You want the tactical decisions because that's the best part of the game. That is the part that you're going to be spending the most time on. That is the part that it's it's kind of designed around. Those are the things that your decisions are right. what should drive the game. In Jagged Alliance 2, you can do some pretty mediocre strategic decisions, but those manifest primarily in maybe you went to the wrong town and your people are going to get wiped out there first. And you can usually run away pretty easily from those. So um, this sort of goes on to a uh, one of my general rules of games is that you it's almost impossible to have like a two-layer game where each layer is equally viable, right? Where you have, in this case, a strategic layer and a tactics layer, and one of them is significantly more important, or none of neither of those are significantly more important than the other. Um, a lot of the time, with something like you know, Endless Legend or Endless Space, which I've been playing a bunch lately, the strategic mode is way more important than the tactical mode, and that's fine. The tactical mode is kind of there, or it's not there in Endless Space too, but in Endless Legend, it's kind of there to have a little bit of control over the battles but it's not the main focus you can auto auto fight those battles and be 
perfectly happy. And in a game like Jagged Alliance 2, the tactics mode is the dominant one, or Darkest Dungeon, the dungeons themselves are the dominant one, where the town is kind of there to uh, provide a, an extra little layer for uh, making it make sense. Um, but it's extraordinarily rare to have a game that managed to do both, and Total War, especially Total Warhammer, seems to be pretty good at that, which is kind of a shock, but I think it's it might be worth talking about some games that do manage to do that. Well, let's let's get into uh let, let's get into Total Warhammer uh a little bit. Um I've played it I've not played too much with with the new expansions. I don't know if that materially changes the meta game. Uh on the It other does. It, it I mean depends it depends on, on who, you who you're playing and what location you're starting yeah. in. Yeah. But it ha- it can have significant differences, especially um, was it the, the the goblin and dwarf expansion the um, that added two new leaders and kind of sub factions. Um, playing that, your concerns are are very different compared to when you're playing the regular orc or dwarf factions. It's a lot tenser, and and your goal is more like direct. You know exactly what you need to do. The first kind of big move that you're constantly working towards, kind of recapturing uh, this this settlement, and it's it's a kind of big momentous thing when you actually get it. It feels it actually feels a lot more like the sort of RPG quest they were trying to evoke with the with the quest battles and trying to get certain fancy objects. This feels more important. Um, but it, yeah, I, I think, and also the difficulty is is a big part of it too, because especially playing as the goblins, it is dreadfully difficult. It kind of forces you to actually um, take advantage of the the campaign map even more uh, when you might be able to just kind of ignore it quite a bit with other factions and just make sure that the strategic battles are something that you've got sorted. So yeah, I think it enhances the the campaign considerably. Yeah, for one example, the dwarf campaign I, I've done most of. I haven't quite finished it off, and maybe I never will because it turned into World War One for me. But um, you have a regular dwarf faction on the west side of the map, which is a lot more detailed, and you have a lot more enemies. And your um, your upkeep costs fifty percent more until you capture a major castle way on the far southeast of the map. So. The, it's kind of this tension between building up and fighting in your local area like you would in any kind of thing with, okay, when am I going to roll the dice and make the move to go take this castle? And the first couple times I rolled the dice way too early, got wiped <laughs> out. Um, so it's, the, yeah, there, there are some interesting tensions with those and just sort of the whole western side of the map is way more detailed now and the wood elves especially will uh provide a lot of danger for trying to grow there and they're quite tricky to play as well they've got very unusual wrinkles in the way that they use amber as a currency and how you actually generate amber is i find quite interesting and it's something i think they're trying to replicate with the high elves not too surprisingly in in Warhammer 2. Um, so Amber is generated by conquering, but it's also generated by diplomacy. Um, and you have to kind of weigh up 
the risk are you going to be you know peaceful or aggressive it's total war you're probably going to be aggressive but it helps to make friends i think the they have like a mini campaign that comes with the dlc that sort of establishes the idea that the elves that even the the isolated wood elves are kind of big into diplomacy and uniting against uh human and beastmen threats what do you what do you think of the um so total warhammer does like it, it introduces a pretty stark dichotomy between like there are the dynamics of the, the strategic layer and then you have that you you have those those objective the objectives those the story beats those uh sort of those 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 missions uh, is the best way to refer to them um does that does that approach really does that approach succeed for you guys cuz i found I struggled with that. Like, I under I understand why you go in that direction, right? Because it actually it actually solves some pretty tricky problems if you're trying to give a campaign a certain arc, but then at the same time uh, you want players to sort of be free to play their own strategy game. Um, it can be it can be tricky to balance the interests of, of of telling those stories and then sort of turning your players loose. Um, I think Endless Legend struggles with that a little bit. Uh, endless space, I, I think, is maybe a little too cautious in that, you know, in a lot of ways, the more I play it, the more it kind of feels like you can kind of you can kind of shit can the uh, the, the the quests, the uh, the story stuff that comes up and just kind of go about your business. Um, so Total Warhammer takes this approach that, you know. You can have your cake and eat it too, right? But actually, they're too. It's sort of the, um, you know, it's 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 the checkerboard cake, if you will, or, or it's uh, or it's the split topping pizza. This compromised design of like, here you go. You can have these narrative missions, but then at the same time, you've got your open ended strategic campaign, and we are tr- and we're kind of trying to keep the one from getting on the other is is kind of how it feels um and on the one hand i kind of appreciated that but on the other hand i'm such a theme (laughs) a theme and mechanics like in harmony fanboy that i'm like "Mm, like really these these two things shouldn't be sort of uh orthogonal They, they you know they should be working sort of fist and glove and for me it just kind of felt like it, it it just it kind of felt like they didn't they didn't connect enough. It it kind of felt like I played my campaign until I felt strong enough to go take on the next mission, and then I played that mission. Um, I don't know where, where do you get what do you get where do you guys come down on that? That's something I think they've improved a lot uh, with uh, with the expansions, Rob. I think that the original ones were uh, especially difficult to deal with when they had like these uh rpg missions that were on the entire other side of the map that like there was no good way to get there without like just marching your hero across the map for 20 turns um that was that was not a good thing they've also added a teleport to campaign mission button which is really not a good thematic thing but it, it sort of fixes that but uh the uh 
this sort of RPG missions make a lot more sense, I think, with the, the newer factions and expanded factions. Um, they, they were, they were fairly dubious, especially with certain factions at the initial release. I think the, the dwarves and the empire hat were, were all relatively close to one another, except for like the very last ones with the vampires, like their second or third one was out in the middle of the desert, which made no strategic sense, but apparently fit the Warhammer lore. It's a lot more harmonious, I think, in the mini expansions, uh, like Call of the Beastmen or whatever it's called, and uh, Realm of the Wood Elves. Uh, with the, they're, they're more linear campaigns. It's not about like just straight conquest. There's an actual story being told. So I think the quests make a lot more sense. And also the the kind of landmass is smaller. It's much more focused on a specific part of of the world. And I think that Creative Assembly have have realized that because if you look at the campaign in two, it, the main campaign is not the grand campaign that we're used to and that was in uh, Warhammer One. It's a it's it's its own discrete story campaign about this vortex and all of these races rushing towards it and trying to destroy it or take control of it. Um, so that's the focus. It's all about this narrative campaign, and yet you're still going to be able to do the typical conquest stuff if you want, because you can win the game by doing that, by defeating all the other races who are in this race, uh, or you can try to beat them by collecting Vortex currency, uh, by doing quests and exploring and things like that. So the grand campaign that they're going to have is going to be a combination of both games, this mega campaign, if you want to just purely go wherever you want, travel across the sea, conquer two continents, that's fine. Uh, so I think that they are able to have their cake and eat it too, because they've just created these two very distinct campaign types. Well, I think in terms of Total Warhammer 1, the the kind of real story to the campaign was how you deal with chaos. Chaos, yeah. Um, yeah. They, the RPG kind of quests to make your hero better were cool, but I think they had the kind of unless you really, really wanted to do those specifically, those were not uh those weren't really the point the the sort of narrative arc to the campaign was your first 75 or so turns you're building up a decent sized infrastructure gathering a, a full province or two and then you get the start of the chaos invasion for the next 50 turns and then you get like the massive oh my god this guy is destroying everything uh chaos at about turn 125 and then once he's defeated you have just kind of this massive chaos wasteland that you're sort of trying to pick up the pieces and finish off your victory conditions too. And I think that that pressure actually ended up working really well with Total War because, and this is something that Attila did as well, um, the end game actually felt relevant. It was not simply, all right, I have, you know, won everything. I have a big enough empire that no one is going to really hurt me too much now i just have to clean up for the next you know 60 hours and that's not very fun with this it enough infrastructure on the map gets destroyed that everything kind of feels under control and the victory conditions especially the short campaign victory conditions are 
plausible to actually do even within a sort of post-apocalyptic map. And I think that ended up working really well for actually maintaining my interest across most of a campaign where uh, Total War has not done that terribly well. Like, I love Shogun 2, but Shogun 2, once you get into any... Once you get into, like, the mid-end game, it's basically just fighting over these very specific choke points over and over and over. And a lot of the Total War games, even as much as I've loved them, have that model of just, here's a choke point, stick with it forever. Yeah, the, um... I don't know, it's... I, I don't... I don't I'm... I'm really curious to to see what Warhammer 2 uh is going to look like or at least I'm sorry to see it with my own eyes. Uh right? Uh because because for me it still feels like uh Total War is is still dialing in the range on this. Um and maybe I was happiest with Attila but yeah there there were there were a lot of issues uh with the, with the way that works. Like Attila in theory, I think is my favorite like total war campaign. But in some ways, the more distance I get from Attila, the more I think I fell in love with the idea of Attila and and the game that like I could see in there, as opposed to the game that often ended up being uh, over the course of, of a campaign. I want to turn towards uh, something a little more recent. uh, And this gives us a chance to maybe bring up Ardan's assault yet again, uh, as well as the Eugen games. And one of the things that really struck me, and at first I was very disappointed. I might still be disappointed. I'm, I'm, I'm working through that as well. Uh, Steel Division doesn't bring back the meta campaigns that we saw in uh, War Game, Airland Battle, or Red Dragon. Instead, it's a linear campaign where your performance on one mission influences what resources you have uh, to deal with the next. Although I'm having, I mean, by and large, I'm probably pretty terrible at this game too. Uh, but I feel like I've turned in like significantly better performances on like my second or third tries in a mission. And it's the game still seems to be telling me like, well, we didn't, you know, we, we took we took high losses. So there's going to be less available. Uh, next mission. So sometimes it kind of feels difficult to uh, get a sense for what tier victory uh, I'm I'm in the process of achieving. Like I get to the end of mission, I'm feeling really good about it. And then at the end, they're like, well, mm, sorry, you're going to have no tanks next mission. And I'm like, what the hell? Like (laughs) I kicked ass, like give me my tanks. Uh, But I think the bigger disappointment is so with Steel Division, you're going through these 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 linear missions, and what changes is the resources you have available to to bring to bear on them, uh, as well as how your own army is getting depleted by its combat losses. Right. So, you know, the first in the first mission of a campaign, you've got your entire uh, you know quote unquote deck to play with, and then by that third mission, if your mortar squads have taken a beating in counter battery fire, where you had like six mortars. Uh, that you could have called up in the first mission, you might be down to one or two, um, which is an interesting wrinkle to tie into it and can really change what you have to work with in those ensuing missions. And yet I'm really nostalgic for Airland Battle's um, dynamic campaign where you're sort of playing on this, uh, you know, not quite chessboard, but it's like a risk map of, of, of your theater and choosing where you're going to make your stand 
from from turn to turn. I'm I'm just curious where you guys where you guys come down on this. Like when 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 you're looking at this sort of like tactical RTS, um, what do you see as the pros and cons of this of this trade off that we're being offered? In Steel Division, I don't think there is a pro to them not having the dynamic campaign map. I was really disappointed by its absence. I thought it was a a missed opportunity to do something like Arden's Assault, where you're actually pushing forward, because it felt like they were... It felt like the missions were actually part of a dynamic campaign, because you do have this sense of, like having to actually deal with your losses and cocking up and there was like a hint of permanence but none of the ways to really counteract that or help yourself or improve your forces which is what you get when you have a campaign map you're able to call in reinforcements you're able to build up you can sort of bolster your confidence a little bit so it it took part of it, but just not enough. And I don't think that you can half R something like that. Um, and I'm really hoping that, like, they'll add some campaign DLC or something, add a dynamic campaign, because for me, that's what war game stuff is is all about. The, those were like, I mean, especially Airland Battle, which had a, an excellent campaign. And I, I just feel like it was a missed opportunity. And there's no doubt about it that Steel Division is is a war game game. Uh, so I don't see why it couldn't have uh, a dynamic campaign bolted on somewhere down the line. So I haven't played these games that you guys are mentioning as the good examples of this. But in general, I my experience with like real-time strategy games or war games that have these sort of pseudo dynamic campaigns that you have like you you pick you know where you're going to fight has not generally been a pleasant one like it's i usually prefer the the straight up linear we designed these very specific missions in a row so it's interesting that there are counter examples here that well, you guys are there's, in favor of there's only like the this handful of counter examples to be entirely fair yeah. now there are people who swear up and down by um what was the 40k one uh was it soulstorm uh, retribution or no the the one that had like the risk map the the first yeah it was we were corrected because when we were speaking about in the dawn of war 3 episode we said soulstorm but soulstorm was actually the slightly shitter one okay um so it was the one that came before soulstorm uh which had dark crusade or winter assault no no winter assault was the first DLC, wasn't it? That is probably Dark Crusade. Yeah, it was Dark Crusade. That's the one. Um, And that introduced the the dynamic uh, campaign, and it worked really well, but they changed it a little bit for for 2, and I felt to its detriment it was a little bit uh, shallower, I think. A lot of things felt a little bit shallower in (laughs) 2. I'd like to... Go to hell, Rowan. Get your, I, I, get your RPG. Uh, pro- Ooh, it's an RPG now. Rowan's all into it. I I just said that I didn't like that with XCOM, and yet you contain multitudes because I'll actually man, jump to Dawn Rowan's War defense. Two, it like had such a terrible case of Diablo envy. It did a little bit. It was like, what if Diablo? But an RTS, we couldn't possibly. But did you not like that loot system? I I loved 
being able to arm my my space marines there was that was like the singular joy of the game was just slapping new gear on them leveling them up be like i'm really in an rpg so, um, so I've, only, <laughs> I've only played the the original release of dawn of war 2 i haven't played either of the or i don't even know how many of expansions that one has two of them but, chaos rising and retribution i think yeah retribution is the one that has like the full-on campaign mm-hmm. map i think i want to yeah go into that but i have not actually you know clicked the play button on it but that that one's a the original dawn of war 2 is a good example of what i thought was a good system of playing the game you know with your you've got a few squads you go into cover all that kind of stuff that's all that's all cool i like that but the sort of semi-random battles with whoever was in whatever spot on the map was just not a thing that ended up appealing to me. I was just on the same map over and over, killing thousands of Tyranids yeah, over and over. There were too over. many... They were just skirmishes that they were repeating over and over again. This, by the yeah. way, is why Eugen didn't go back to that that uh, model for Steel Division as well. Because uh, I, I asked... Um, what is it? Alexis, uh, let her say? Yeah, I think so. Um, I asked him specifically what that campaign that campaign structure was going to be like and he said actually a lot of the feedback he got on airland battle and red dragon uh was that it felt like a skirmish mode by another name and it felt like you were playing the same skirmishes on the same maps again and again and again i'm not entirely sure i agree with that uh first if if he heard that like it depends when he heard that criticism because i would say the red dragon campaign just in the way those maps were laid out and the dynamics set up and set up there were a little less variable and a little more of a uh attrition game than airland battle was so i don't think the execution was as good the second time around but i do kind of see where they're coming from with the way that game worked was you sort of revisited the same map potentially for the third, fourth, fifth time in the course of this campaign. And you were bringing different units to bear, but like it was, it was, it was, it was skirmish mode uh, just with sort of this overarching uh, campaign structure. On the other hand, when it worked, it really worked. Like, you know, there was, there were some, missions i want to say like your your starting zone changed depending on how much you'd sort of seized control of the map in the previous uh run through so you'd have like yeah it would be a skirmish but it was sort of going in the um oh shit we're gonna have to talk about close combat bridge too far uh in a minute here uh but (laughs) it was sort of doing the same thing that close combat bridge too far did which was there was sort of neutral no man's ground no man's land between where the battle lines were drawn at the end of the last uh, skirmish, the last battle, and then each side got more or less of the map to to set up in, uh, or at least its 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 entry points uh, seemed to change based on how things had gone uh, the last time around, which which made the skirmishes feel a little bit different. And the context did matter, right? Like the 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 difference between that the campaign and the skirmish mode was in a skirmish mode. If I'm playing with an army that only has like three main battle tanks of you know that are that are top tier, that means I screwed up or or I built a really weird army. You know what I mean? Like there's like I'm just not going to field that kind of army by choice. I thought it was kind of cool in in like Airland Battle where 
if your units took a beating, uh, it, it was very possible that you'd end up having to make this like heroic stand on the backs of like anti-aircraft artillery tanks and like one surviving main battle tank. And that was kind of, that was kind of it. And you just had to make that work. And I liked being forced into those, um, those uncomfortable scenarios. I thought that was, that was a really neat approach. Um, so I'm a little disappointed to see steel division go, uh, in, in the route it did, but I, but I do agree, Rowan in general, these sort of risk map, uh, game modes have not been a huge success going all the way back to um, the first one I remember is Dune. Uh, what? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, the new Dune. Not because I never played the original Dune that, that Westwood made. I'm talking about the one they made years later with lots of FMV. Yeah, that's one in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, it's like Dune reboot something. I don't remember the exact name. But yes, I I remember all the previews being like, oh, there's this dynamic campaign. It's going to be great. Oh, blah blah blah. And then the reviews come out, and it's like, oh, we're just playing these same maps over and over, and they're all generic. And that sort of seemed to be the the trend that I have seen. Yeah. So, uh, did you play Ardennes Assault, Rowan? No, I because I, I I keep coming back. I think there's rarely an episode goes by that I don't find a way to mention Ardennes Assault. So it's nice that it's. There's an actual good reason. Oh, it's to like your positive run too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the one thing that I'll always remember from playing Ardennes Assault is that each battle, even though ultimately they have that kind of hint of you're replaying certain things, because the battles are tied to regions and and there's kind of dynamic missions in all of them they all have these kind of memorable moments and they actually feel a lot of the time like they have little they have little set pieces within these maps and it's not scripted but they're designed in such a way that you'll probably have a sort of epic confrontation in each of the maps so it doesn't feel like just a run-of-the-mill forgettable skirmish they're important key missions that feel like they could be part of a scripted totally linear campaign but you're actually getting to pick where you go you're actually you've got dynamic challenges as well because you actually have the the germans doing exactly the same thing as you uh so yeah that's how you make these dynamic maps work i think you have to make it feel like they're not just skirmishes over and over again and i think that does require a little bit more effort and i think it also means that they have to be a little bit shorter you i don't think it can be done for like 50 hours long i I think a game of ardennes assault is actually quite a brisk paced affair uh you could be done with it in you know in an afternoon maybe a bit of an evening not the way so that's what i was (laughs) That's what I was going to get to. Like, I could see a dynamic Steel Division campaign working if it's, like, four or five battles. Mm. You know, I, There's I can't more of that see... in Ardennes Assault, but they're just... It does feel a bit faster-paced. Yeah, I, I, I can't see it, it working with, um, you know, here's your 30-hour game. That... Yeah. But I, I'm adding this to my wish list, so maybe I will buy it in a Steam Stale and never play it. <laughs> I think the sweet spot is maybe, like... For a, a dynamic strategy campaign, less than 20 hours? Yeah. I mean, to I be mean, fair, I that might be the is... sweet spot for every game. 
Um, for every yes, I think I agree. Uh, but and the thing with these is they're replayable as well, and that that's the I think the benefit they have over a lot of linear campaigns is that you can just dive in, and you're not just going through this the motions. You there are still surprises, uh, but you have to make sure that each mission actually feels handcrafted, even if it isn't. But I think this is. This is a general conversation that we, we should have and go, goes back to the original XCOM thing, which is, you know, that was a 30, 40 hour game that also, I think, I, like I said, I and a bunch of people recommended you, that you were probably going to have to restart your campaign at some point. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason people didn't like that was, you know, that's just a hell of a lot of a time investment. And, um, you know, it's, is that a thing that, we should expect from these games. I don't know. Just I don't have a specific question. I'll just toss that out. Like, <laughs> is Do Darkest you mean the Dungeon idea too of long? Because like, you're really talking about almost like a permadeath style strategy or tactics game. Is that acceptable? Is that what you mean? I'm not not necessarily. I'm just just in terms of like how long should a campaign be? How long? All oh, right. Yeah, I think tw- I think twenty uh, twenty and lower. I mean, it, again, it de- it depends on the style of campaign, but for a campaign like that, definitely, because by I I loved XCOM too. I I think I liked it uh, considerably more than you did, Rowan. But I, I liked s- it. Oh, I know I just you did, didn't but quite you... love it. Yeah, whereas but I, that made me I, the I XCOM it. two defender on the PMA. <laughs> well, that's because you you were you were on the pod with uh, Rob Soft Boy Zachney and <laughs> uh, and and David. Uh, games fill me with profound ennui. Heron, um, <laughs> whose whose game didn't even work. He had the bug where it was like super duper slow. Oh god! Yeah, and he mentioned, he only mentioned that at the very end of the show, and I'm like, of course the game needs to work quickly. Like, I don't know. Yeah, but that's that's the game's fault. You know, it has that bug. So yeah, and, if and he tried fair, to play it with that, then we, that's on XCOM. We all showed up to that game with the best of intentions, right? Like maybe expect- expectations were too high, but like it was, it arrived to a very friendly, favorable audience, and then it kind of like let down those expectations. Um, yeah, I think for me, nine to twelve hours is probably my my sweet spot for a uh, for a dynamic campaign. Like I want to be able to play through it end to end uh in in that sort of time frame and it was good like i might do that sort of campaign a few times right like but but i don't want it to be like i want realistically i want like three or four really good deep sessions and then i kind of want to be able to restart or move on or like take the the lessons i've learned and apply them uh afresh on, on another game i don't want to be caught in um, you know, end turn hell, uh, basically, or, you know, you know, I just, I think strategy games and tactics games, maybe more than a lot of others can risk turning into a slog. Um, especially in those early playthroughs where you haven't really figured things out. And in some ways that can be a good thing because then there's more like discovery that you're making over the course of that campaign. Uh, but at the same time, it's also very easy to find yourself in these sort of like unsatisfying mid game scenarios. Though to be fair, a lot of games struggle with mid game scenarios to begin with. Uh, so that, that kind of contributes to that sort of sluggishness, but a lot of like 
if I'm having multiple sessions where it doesn't feel like there's a lot for me to look forward to, it's going to be new that I'm just kind of pressing forward with some sort of, uh, you know, series of really, um, grindy, uh, missions or, or, or turns or phases, then that's going to get pretty old. Okay. But we love darkest dungeon. I like darkest dungeon. Well, well, me and Rob at least. Yeah. <laughs> that is nothing but a grindy mid game. Yeah, but I also haven't played Darkest Dungeon like nearly as much like nearly as much as I would have because like I was you know I, like I was grooving on that for for a long time and then like God knows how many hours in um, I had it was just one of those cursed days, Rowan. <laughs> just it was just it was a day where just all was ashes. Um, like first one really beloved character just like bought it and I like, and it was avoidable. It was like, it was, it was those days in, in those grindy games, you know how sometimes you can kind of like lose your mind a little bit. I think it's sort of the logic that led to something like we're done where it's like, no, I can, if we just, if we just bleed them enough, if we just like lean into this hell, uh, sufficiently, we'll be able to, we'll be, we'll be able to break through. And so, like, I was trying to force something, and then, like, one really important character bought it. And then I was like, okay, that's bad. But I got a deep bench. Let's keep going. Let's let's keep this campaign going. And then it was kind of for, you know, for want of a, uh, you know, necromancer, the rogue was lost. And for want of a rogue, <laughs> uh, the knight was lost. And the next thing you knew, like, my first line heroes were just completely wiped out. And that's when you discover, like... <laughs> that's when you discover the real dark souls of darkest dungeon. Uh, the game is like, all right, it's very uh, Sisyphean, right? It's, it's very yeah, like, or run it back. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, time to go back to all those crappy missions and just run them again and again and again. And maybe you can recover that lost ground and beat that, beat that tier of mission uh, later. And that is pretty, that's a big ask. Um, so I don't know. It's like, I, like I, I admire the hell out of the darkest dungeon design, but I think maybe it's an Attila situation where like, <laughs> I love darkest dungeon so much that I don't fully clock the fact that I might hate it. Well, I, I think there's also a difference in games that you expect to finish. So Something like XCOM 2 is constantly introducing, like, really interesting new stuff. It's guiding you towards a gigantic endgame that seems like it should be awesome. Darkest Dungeon is kind of doing the same thing over and over, but a little harder each time. And I never feel like I haven't finished Darkest Dungeon, therefore I'm not getting the Darkest Dungeon experience. I feel like once I hit a point in the campaign where I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied. And if I come back three months later and start a new one, then that's fine. Like, even if I never end up finishing it, I don't feel bad about that in the way that XCOM 2, a campaign that I don't end up finishing, feels like a total failure. Yeah. And that's that's something that is sort of, is also kind of a strategy versus RPG divide, but not necessarily. Like, um, I don't know, I don't feel terrible about not finishing some of my total warhammer campaigns but i'm glad i at least finished you know a couple of them uh civilization campaigns which is not necessarily a game that we've talked about here much but like not a great fit really but even still i love starting new civilization games over and over oh, i yeah. don't finish very many of them 
uh, Endless Legend, I've been trying to play a bunch of recently and been doing that exact same thing again. I love figuring out where to place my cities. The rest of it, I don't know, maybe. Look, someone just needs to make some really good land rush games or or something just like just claim jumping land rushing games like i mean that's off-world trading company right yeah to be fair yes yes it is uh but i just never want it to end is the is the yeah. thing like <laughs> right, like off-world trading companies is is eventually like you know it doles out those expansions uh which which you can definitely play around with but but then it makes me work in between and i just want to acquire you know what i mean like i just i just want that that rush that i get in civilization when i like discover yet another uh mountain sheltered fertile river river valley with with uh with floodplains and i'm like oh yes here we go you know it's that it's uh this is a fertile land uh like all the time that's that's what i'm looking for um i can't believe we haven't seen a lot of like those sorts of gold rush uh land rush uh type games in part because i think the forex genre probably does hit that beat so often that maybe it feels a little bit extraneous and then also if you're just making uh sort of land rush type games uh how long before you're just making games about i don't know the mongols sweeping into eastern into eastern europe or you know western colonists uh driving driving westward into indigenous territory uh but nevertheless the heart wants what it wants uh when it, when it comes to when it comes to those sorts of games i mean part of this is that a lot of 4x games are have a kind of competitive premise you're racing against yeah. other that that's the campaign it's a race where i think what we're seeing and the you know we talk about this within the space some is uh we're seeing a trend towards games where it's you know player versus environment and i think you can do a land rush game like that like a portal opens to an alien world you go and settle that and face whatever is coming like that's that seems like a a good way to avoid a lot of the colonization issues that might come up or at least that's a tried and true way of you know getting people on twitter to not argue about it quite so often but you know you you could do something like that with a 4x model and create an interesting meta campaign that's built on the environment coming at you as opposed to you know hoping that there isn't the ai is inherently good enough to do the trick in a dynamic campaign i think a lot of the the campaigns we've been talking about, I think the the solution is just make them more dynamic. I think we, we've been talking about it in, in ways that seem, you know, when we're saying this is how long a campaign like this should be, uh, we're making it seem insurmountable. Like, that's the only way to make them work, is to make them short. Whereas I think, because I look at how much time I put into a 4X game, and it's hundreds of hours compared to the much shorter amount of time I'm willing to put into something like Dawn of War 2 or whatever. And I just I, I think the reason is because that map in a 4X game is always changing. Whereas in XCOM 2, it kind of always it's basically the same. Yeah. I mean, you're you're kind of saving territory, but it's not like you're actually... The map doesn't actually feel as dynamic as a dynamic map should be, right? 
there's not enough changing going on. There's you going to a place, getting in touch with the resistance, attacking a facility, moving on. Yeah, Long War Two kind of tries to do that, but I don't think it succeeds as much as it wants to. Mm. So I just think having these big changes is necessary. Yeah, well, I think some of it's just having your decisions reflected back to you uh, on the sure. map, and yeah, like XCOM doesn't do that, uh, you know, and Jagged Alliance does, right? Like Jagged Alliance, you can see the cities you've liberated, you can train militia there, so it feels like your progress is sticky, and most of all, it feels like the progress you were making in the, in the game is, is actually the progress you related, you were making in the campaign. Like the thing you said you were doing is in fact the thing you were doing. Whereas XCOM is often setting, setting the, setting you these tasks like, Oh, you're going to go here and you make contact with this resistance seller. You're going to set back the avatar project if you, if you go here. And really all you're doing is sort of adjusting your, you know, resource flow or your countdown timer a little bit, but it doesn't feel like you're actually building up this viable resistance. You know, it just feels like you're buying yourself more time to go through this like kind of rote campaign. Um, I do just want to shout out real quick. Um, the close combat campaigns aren't all winners, but close combat to a bridge too far was like the king of the war game. Uh, dynamic campaigns. It is. It is really something. If you haven't, have, have either of you played this game? Nope. No, I got to close combat way too late, and the interface drove me away. I'm trying to remember which is the last one I played. It'll be on Steam. Uh, yeah, it was gate. Uh, yeah, it was Gateway. That was the one I played. Gateway to come. That wasn't that. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that's what it was. That was not bad. Uh, yeah, I thought it was good. It was fucking difficult. Um, but yeah, it's difficult in the way like it's a very difficult game. It's it's a combined arms game in the hedgerows. That's sort of inherently difficult. Mm -hmm. um, the mortar is the king of that of that battlefield. God, yes. <laughs> um, as as it is in Steel Division uh, too. Like I'm actually struck by the similarities between Gateway to Khan and uh, Steel Division. Like a lot of those maps definitely feel like. Um, you're still dealing with that that insurmountable problem of all of those blind turns and cut cut up lines of sight because uh, of those damn hedgerows. And when I think of either of those games, I'm just thinking of plumes of smoke yep. and like terrified men on the ground and just like sort of <laughs> creeping up to those hedgerows and like <laughs> sending your an belly. infantry unit through it to see what's on the other side. <laughs> and a lot of times, like there's an infantry unit right on the other side waiting for you to just do just that, and you get obliterated. Um, yeah, it's, it's cool. A bridge too far, <laughs> a bridge too far. God, I wish there was a proper like remake and not, and not one of those modern remakes where they expand it a bunch and, and sort of make some sort of like new take on close combat. Like close combat bridge too far was the, uh, the market garden campaign. So the, the drive, uh, through, uh, through Holland trying to get around, uh, sort of Germany's right flank into their uh, industrial heartland um, via uh, via the Low Countries, via Holland, and that the way that campaign was set up, uh, the the historical campaign. Well, we get to the the game in a minute. Was this really aggressive use of glider borne and airborne units to seize these key bridges? 
uh, over waterways in Holland. And the idea was you were going to drop them to seize, seize these bridges. And then uh, the 30th, uh, 30 Corps, uh, I want to say, was coming up the highway with the main Allied force. And they were going to reach each of these sort of uh, these major bridgeheads that the airborne units were holding. And they're just going to sort of, you know, blaze down that highway and, uh, you know, and go win the war in 44 as it were. And the way the campaign is structured is that basically uh, 30 Corps is going to move with the speed 30 Corps is going to move. Uh, what matters is you can speed it up by holding the bridges. Like if bridges get dynamited, uh, then 30 Corps will be delayed and it will take longer to reach the next objective. The other thing is, so all, you, all your airborne units are holding these key locations against these German counterattacks. And as airborne units, they'll have their very specific kit uh, that they have access to. And it's not really, it's like finite. So you have that problem of certain types of units will just start to get depleted uh, as this, as this campaign continues and combat takes its toll. And it's not until 30 Corps gets to them that the supply lines are back open and reinforcements are really available. The catch is the Germans start counterattacking every single inch of the line of advance. And so they can cut the route um, and then cut off your access to reinforcements. And so the way that campaign ends up playing out is it starts out, you have these discrete uh, camp, it's, it's like almost like discrete campaigns, one about the bridge at Arnhem, one about the bridge at Nijmegen, and one about the bridge at uh, Eindhoven. And that's three different airborne units all fighting those battles. And each is sort of dependent on the other, and then they're all dependent on keeping that highway open uh, once you've sort of, once you've sort of opened, once you've cleared it. And it is just, it is brilliant. And the, the other thing that's happening is that it's not this like binary state where you either win your skirmish or you don't. You will have like front lines form on the maps themselves. And so like, you know, sort of my classic example, and it feels very historical, is like, you know, when you've got the, uh, the British Red Devils at Arnhem holding these, uh, you know, German mechanized units at bay, they're slowly getting ground down. Like the city's getting blown to hell. Uh, buildings are collapsing. Half of it's on fire. There's like wrecked tanks, clogging alleys. And the front line keeps creeping closer to the bridge and, and the objectives. And so like each time you're playing it, it's the same map, sure. But the front line has shifted. Where you can set up your defenses and where you can like stage your assault has also shifted. And so like, it feels tactically very, very different, even if it's the same map that it's been the last like eight times. Uh, so I'm like, when I think of like dynamic war game campaigns, I am hard pressed to name one that, uh, that sort of nails the connection between the tactical and the strategic as well as uh, close combat and bridge too far. And I think that might just be possible because of the, the weird nature of this campaign, right? Like I'm not sure there's many other campaigns that you could even design this way. Uh, but a bridge too far is kind of the sweet spot. Do you think you need to have the... Because uh, well, you mentioned it wasn't just binary, it wasn't just victory or failure. Do you think a dynamic campaign needs to have 
these extra consequences rather than just failing or succeeding. Yes, and that's a great point. Yeah, I think it does. I think one of the things that we're also coming to here is that uh, scope is important. The smaller or perhaps narrower the scope, um, the easier it is to design something that seems to make sense. XCOM 2 takes place across the whole world. Jagged Alliance 2 takes place in a tiny Central American fictional country. Like, you can fight for every inch of that hospital, and it makes sense in Jagged Alliance 2 in a way that it doesn't in XCOM 2, because the scope is right for that game. Um, That's a great point. It's very specific. Right, and so, you know, maybe this particular campaign in close combat, the Market Garden, is really good for a particular type of campaign, but there are also other campaigns across various historical wars that could make for a fantastic war game if, you know, someone sat down and said, how does this, how does this make sense as a game? So that's why Steel Division would have been a great candidate for a campaign like that. Yes. Because it is much more focused. It is like this very specific moment and area in the war. So I, I think it would have been even better, potentially, than Airland Battle or Red Dragon totally because agree. of that narrow field of view. Well, yeah, and it's like... So it's interesting, like, with with close combat, it kind of works because your map is this um, really thin, uh, narrow front advance. And so each sort of segment of that road becomes really important and becomes sort of its own little landmark. And, and you sort of have to, you have to hold them all if you're the allies and you just need to hold one, uh, if you're the Germans, uh, as well as control those damned bridges, uh, at, at the end of play. Um, I think a lot of campaigns don't lend themselves to this. Like when close combat went to the Eastern front, it's trying to do the entire Eastern front in a dynamic campaign. It just doesn't make sense. Like you can't play a company level war game and then also have this company like playing a relevant, like meaningful campaign, a meaningful battle at every single major stop on your tour of East, Eastern battlefields. It just, it just doesn't make any kind of sense. In Normandy, I think with steel division would have, yeah, it would have lent itself to that because it's a siege, right? Like, I mean, it's a major campaign, but it's a major campaign where the battle lines didn't move all that much. Like until the very end, when the Americans break out and the German army sort of rapidly collapses, um, it's it's really a story of just two armies sort of pulverize, pulverizing each other into dust uh, over the same patches of terrain. There was God. There's there's one hill uh, that the British and the Germans uh, fought over with with armored units uh, repeatedly, and it just becomes this um, really quite actually spooky sounding um, graveyard of of heavy armor that tanks just keep driving into and uh, you know blasting the hell out of each other. Imagine how cool it would be if you were forced to sort of like live that reality via metagame mechanics, right? Where like, uh, you got to go back in there. Like, you, you, you know, it's not, it's not, you have to win the mission with the really difficult hill. It's, well, I guess, uh, I got driven off that hill, uh, for the second time. So now <laughs> what do I have left to retake it with? Right? Like that becomes pretty cool. Um, I think Seal Division would have lent itself to that and, and it didn't. 
Uh, and I, I mean, it still might. This is a paradox game. This is true, yeah. But there were still those moments cause in the midst of battles, and that's why it would work so well. You have those moments where you are trying to assault uh, a certain part of town or take over a farmhouse, and you fail, and then you regroup, and you try and figure out how to approach it again, and you fail again, and your resources are becoming greatly diminished, and you've lost all of your light tanks or whatever. But you, and you, you can also take cover behind those tank shells now. <laughs> They're just mounted up. Um, so having, yeah, having that as part of a meta campaign as well. So it... it it means you're having this say it's having the same impact in the the actual missions and in the campaign. So here's something I just thought of when we were talking about limited scope war games, um, how to fake a dynamic campaign. Uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, yeah, the choose your own adventure model. Like, See, I never played that. I never played Sid Meier's it's Gettysburg. It's the best. It's it's literally the greatest game in history. <laughs> or maybe about history one of the two it is real good it's basically a, it's basically a choose your own adventure thing except like you know you go and take this hill you take the hill the next scenario the, the voice acting and this is why i say sid meyer's gettysburg and not ultimate general civil war which i or gettysburg which i do like a lot and does a lot of similar things but sid meyer's gettysburg has people doing really really hilarious civil war voices about well so go on and get those shoes yeah exactly now let's go it's surprise harry heath yeah um, <laughs> oh harry but like you so you know you take mcpherson's hill and if you're the confederates then you're going up against the harder battle at seminary ridge directly if you don't take it you get a slightly easier one but there's also um i think it's not just a single um, win-lose state. I think that like there are alternate, uh, yeah, alternate um, objectives that if you take, they'll change what the next victory point looks like. Even if you, uh, even if you didn't get the main objective, you still have an easier time the next time if you manage to take the side objectives. Um, and I think it has just more interesting, like historical variability. Ultimate General Gettysburg funnels toward Pickett's Charge really hard. Like you are going to see that battle, you are going to play that battle, whether you want to or not. No matter what happened <laughs> the previous days, all those other missions, <laughs> Pickett's boys aren't are going over that wall, uh, whether it makes sense or not. See, I love and felt completely lost playing that game, especially against you, Rob. I just had no context for what was going on. Yeah, it was kind I of... I was like, it's one of these funny little foreign wars. <laughs> like, what's this hill? I'm just going to charge up there. This will be fun. And Rob just smashes me. Um, yeah, it was bizarre. I, I felt like I was a tourist, really. Just a weird thing. It is interesting. I've been, I'm doing a little more reading on... Um sort of various armies preparations for world war one uh a little bit of jeffrey walrow and revisiting uh alistair horn on verdun but it is interesting reading about why the europeans didn't really pay attention to the lessons of the late civil war and it is funny it's, it's if you sort of compare what european armies were doing at the time um they really had moved beyond the like Napoleonic massed formations uh, model for the, for the for the most part, uh, they were starting to 
operate in sort of in smaller, I guess what you call like fire teams uh, at this point, like platoons were becoming like the major tactical unit, um, not, you know, companies, not regiments. Um, and that kind of causes them to miss the importance of what the end of that war signifies because they sent a lot of their observers there early. And a lot of the observers are reporting back like, well, the American troops are really badly trained and there's not a ton of like good officers to lead them. And so their doctrine is really outdated. Um, they can't really fight open order battles uh, the way we're increasingly pushing in the direction of. Uh, so there's just not that much to learn here. And that kind of is the, the conclusion they draw. And then they don't really pay attention to the way the war ends, which is just massive numbers of guys uh, sitting in like really intricate uh, earthworks, blasting the hell out of each other with artillery. Um, so it just kind of occurred out of, out of nowhere. Um, Rob reads books. <laughs> Have you played much of the Ultimate General Civil War campaign? No, because the, so the last. It's not what I want. What? It's not what I want. Yeah, like, well, I don't know. Like, I haven't played it much since, uh, well, that whole multiplayer debacle, for one. Uh, <laughs> where we spend the day arguing about how we'll set up multiplayer and then don't actually... Uh, the game doesn't have multiplayer. Uh, but the other aspect, uh, <laughs> the other thing that, that went a little bit wrong there is the game was just so new. It was so, um, it was so clearly early when I was playing it that, like, I needed to give it more time. You're not feeling that direction overall? I, I'm just not interested in the campaign, at least until the uh, the battles seem like they're more dynamic. They're more Sid Meier's Gettysburg yeah. or even Ultimate General Gettysburg. And, I think uh, it's weird to have a battle train in the first mission, too. Um, I question it, that decision. Yeah. All the I'm not interested in the historic or the non-historical missions at all. I think that they're they're bad history and a bad a bad direction for the game to go in. Are um, they like alt history battles or something? Very much so. Like the first mission, at least the first mission of the campaign when I played it was like, it starts out pretty cool. It's a small unit skirmish, uh, you know, Union advance, Confederates defending. Uh, there's really only a handful of regiments involved in the engagement. So it actually does kind of feel good for a career mode, uh, right? Because like, they're small armies. They're small, they're small combats and you sort of are working your way up. But then also in that first mission, you sort of drive the, you drive Johnny Reb out of this town and then you get this prompt that like the armored train is a common general, get ready. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, armored train. What, what? I'm pretty you... sure that's a Starcraft two mission. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is. And so you're like, you're setting up in like Harper's Ferry or whatever. And the, yeah. Okay. Trains were important in this war. Got it. 1861 though. In this game, like, a Confederate land dreadnought basically rolls up on you, just, like, bristling with artillery pieces from its, like, armored carapace, and just starts, like, wreaking <laughs> mighty havoc uh, on on all your troops, and rifle units don't even worry it, and so you've got to, like, position your cannons, like, anti-tank guns, and, and chase this thing off. And it's like, well, that seems dumb as hell. It, it, this is also a battle that historically, like this is a, the, at least the idea of a historical battle called Philippi or Philippi races, yeah. where 
the Union showed up at this town, surprised the Confederates in their camp, shot two of them, and then the entire Confederate brigade or whatever just bailed. <laughs> and now we have armored trains and casualties in like the three or four thousands. Wow. It's, it's a lot more exciting than just two it, dudes getting shot. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the other um, sort of non-historical battles are just kind of generic. You're sitting in a fort, defend it from the Confederates, wait for reinforcements. Yeah. It's not... They're not quite as ridiculous as this one, but they don't seem to have, like... Part of the whole reason that I think the Civil War battles are interesting are, like, how you interact with the map, you know? How how you know these battle lines are supposed to go. Um, how you mean the from, map- like, a historical perspective? Like, because you, you know from your knowledge part- of what actually partially that, Partially that, but, like, what Rob was talking about with uh, um, close combat and what we see a little with Steel Division is how... You know, the interactions that the armies have with the maps will create interesting battle lines wherever they are. Right. And when those go into what I know as historical or ahistorical modes. But the what I played of the fictional battles are just not that. They, they don't seem to have that kind of um, emergent narrative, I guess, is yeah. probably the best way to put it. Right. But there's also just something weird about a campaign that's based on fighting these historical battles in order with <laughs> your particular units that you have put together. And I think Rob was maybe talking about that a little with the other close combat game, the Eastern Front one. But, like, it's... Yeah. It it doesn't really make sense to have your division go from Shiloh, win at Shiloh if you're playing the Confederates, which is a battle they lost, and then suddenly switch over and you're fighting, you know, second bull run or whatever. It's um, like somehow this unit is in like every single battle in the war. Yeah, it's yeah, like the, and it's the, the battles and the battles are removed from context because like if the Confederates won at Shiloh, things would be extremely difficult or different in that war. Yeah. Um I think that's probably the most important battle of the war and like if you lose that in the campaign, it's game over. So if so it's not actually it, di- it's not dynamic at all then. It's Right. It's it it's just not a campaign that I think is of interest to me like i i know some people like it but right now i play that game for the battles yeah. right well i think uh i think we'll leave our discussion there um i think we i think we i think we made some real inroads into this into this meta game issue uh i think <laughs> i think three moves ahead cracked the case <laughs> we want them to be small and fast except for the big long ones that are awesome and like rpgs but like not <laughs> I think a lot of what we were talking about could be summed up as we want them to be narrower, but deeper. Yeah, in general, yes. I think. Specific. Make them specific, not like focus on like one area rather than a couple of planets. Yeah, like like make I I think make the structure feel informed by the setting you're purporting to utilize, and then the tasks you're setting before your player. If those things are supporting each other and your results are being reflected to you meaningfully in the campaign layer, I think that's where things get pretty satisfying. Uh, But if that meta layer just kind of is existing and it's kind of doing its own thing and proceeding like proceeding according to someone else's timetable or script, that can be, that can be a turnoff. So yeah. The, Crack to the case. The, the, no, Roman. 
Case closed. The reflection is very important. We're, I'm, we're I'm reinforcing you. <laughs> I'm reinforcing. I'm agreeing. Okay. I, I was I was worried you were gonna. I thought I was worried you start tugging at that thread. I'd be like, you know, I'm not sure we got our man on this one. It's like, sorry, the jury already convicted. <laughs> And and hopefully BattleTech will have all of these things that we've talked yes. about, and oh, God, none of yes. the contradictory ones. There is a dynamic campaign. If I can feel like now I'm ready to put my feet up on my desk and crack open a bottle of whiskey, look at a photo of my ex-wife, <laughs> just feel like the case is over, done, thank God, now I can retire. The metagame we couldn't solve is our lives. Anyway, <laughs> and then a wailing saxophone comes in. Well, ask Michael to put that in. Uh, so actually, Michael is on hiatus. Uh, my, Michael no. is taking a podcast production break. Uh, and so this week, it is produced by our friend uh, Jonathan Downen, who's done a couple episodes for us in the past. And uh, many of you may know from... Uh, a lot of different podcasts, but uh, the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart is Games with Jobs. Uh, so uh, Jonathan is is filling in uh, for the next few weeks, and we are very grateful for that. Um, and Through the Head is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with, with our community at throughthehead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, finally, uh, Through the Head is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, Troy and I recently had a very good Q&A episode uh, that was that was all kinds of fun. Uh, and we tweaked our format a little bit. And, and we got to the bottom of a lot of things uh, as well. Much like this show. So you can, you can listen to that uh, if you head over to patreon.com slash 3MA. Um, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA's Ahead. Until then, for Ronan Fraser, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.